Hello, and welcome to the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale. For this season of the podcast, our theme is Natural Materials and Processes for the Detection, Destruction, and Sequestration of PFAS. Today, I'm excited to speak with some of my colleagues at Ordered and Kern, Sam Olney, Matt Jones, and Kathy Rockwell. They led a unique study on the occurrence of PFAS in rainwater. I chose this topic because it looks at the occurrence and movement of PFAS in the natural water cycle. So let's learn more about the topic from its innovators. Welcome to the podcast team. So please tell us about your technical background, you know, your role at Water and Current and you know, how you got uh, involved in PFAS as part of your uh, professional practice. So let's start with Sam. Okay. Um, I am a technical manager here at Woodard and Curran um, and a geologist. Um, I've um, been at Woodard and Curran for a little while now, um, have primarily um, been working on um, designing and implementing uh, site investigations. Um, this project was a natural fit. Um, I got involved with PFAS um, mostly because of the um, the project work, right? I, I, I've been working on a few sites where PFAS has, um, has become an issue. Um, and so naturally uh, started working on that. Also, um, I think at some point, Kathy actually said to me, hey, can you <laughs> try to understand this PFAS thing a little bit? <laughs> um, and I think I started by literally making a list of the, the primary PFAS constituents that, that labs could analyze um, <laughs> at that point a few years ago. So um, that's, uh, that's how I got roped into this. Cool, Sam. Thanks. How about you, Matt? I am a meteorologist um, and I am in the environmental services side of uh, ENR, environmental remediation, and I do air quality. Uh, work air quality modeling, air quality uh, consulting, and I typically get uh, involved in PFAS project considerations. If there's a uh, there's an emission component to the PFAS uh, issue, and there and then a subsequent transport and and deposition of of those emissions that could impact uh, the project or uh, stakeholders related to the project. And I got roped into this research project because I'm I'm the rec I'm the requisite weatherman. So <laughs> someone to stand in front of a green screen and smile and, and do some forecasting and to think about precipitation. So I gladly signed up and uh, been glad to be part of this team. Thanks, Matt. I think you bring a unique facet to things. You know, it's not all about soil and groundwater with uh, PFAS. It's about uh, air emissions and air transport, and uh, as we'll find out uh, how PFAS occurs in rain. So I think you are a unique facet to the team. How about you, Kathy? So I've been in the environmental remediation field for, for over 20 years and with Woodard and Curran for the majority of that time. My main focus is remediation, so cleaning up contaminated sites, all aspects from investigation, development of remedial objectives, design, implementation, long-term monitoring, closure, um, and, and I bring kind of the engineering side to this team. I've had a variety of roles at Woodard and Curran, uh, currently managing a couple larger of our multi-remedy sites, uh, providing technical support for those um, as well as others. 
but really I got involved with PFAS because of the project work similar to Sam. Um, there are multiple historic releases to a couple of the sites that I work at. And naturally these are the sites where emerging contaminants uh, tend to appear. And so uh, really working with it one-on-one -on, -one on our daily basis, um, understanding the fate and transport of where PFAS is on our sites. Great, and I probably should also ask you to tell the audience uh, where you're located, uh, which Woodard and Current Office. So I guess we'll go around the horn again, Sam. Um, I'm in uh, Andover, Massachusetts. And Matt? I as well, Andover. <laughs> and I think I know the next answer. Well, I, I you know, was originally at Andover, but technically I'm now virtual. So, um, but yeah, we're all work together in, out of the Massachusetts office, which is why it kind of leads to this you know, particular project because it is a, a Massachusetts-based study. Gotcha. Okay, so could you please tell us about the support and funding for this research project? Sure. I mean, I think it really starts with, um, you know, to start it with Woodard and Kern in general. Our leadership team has been very supportive of this project, uh, really starting with Duff Collins, who is a main supporter as well as contributor of this work. Um, and so I think first we want to thank our, our Wood and Curran team, but also we were able to get uh, some partial funding through a West grant by the LSP Association. Um, the team was really, really excited to receive this from our peers at the LSPA. Um, and we are also teaming with Jim Macalini and his team over at Alpha Analytical. So um, what is the LSPA, Kathy? Uh, the LSPA is the, the Licensed Site Professional Association uh, out of Massachusetts. Okay, thank you. So let's get into the project itself. I understand a lot of thought and consideration went into the study design, the sampling program, and the logistics. Uh, most exciting for me was the team effort that went into the project. So please tell us about the broader Woodard and Kern team uh, that was enlisted to execute this study, please. Yeah, I can uh, talk to that. Um, so we um, we enlisted volunteers, um, 25 volunteers from across the, the state of Massachusetts to do this study. Um, we wanted to make sure they were regionally distributed, so we had um, good good samples from across the state. Um, 21 of those volunteers were actually employees of Woodard and Curran, um, which I think is really really cool. Um, and and the majority were not. Um, you know, we're not from our sort of remediation business unit. They were not folks who, you know, collect samples as part of their jobs every day, um, that, that kind of thing. Um, we had folks from really all of our business units, um, including, you know, folks from the finance department, um, you know, our, our uh, municipal team. Um, and so it was a really a, a team effort to make this happen. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And and when people want to know, you know, do we know how to sample for PFAS? I'd love to say yes. Uh, you know, our finance department, right through our technical field staff, know how to uh, sample for PFAS. So that's pretty cool. Um, so how was the Woodard and Current team trained in the collection of water samples for PFAS? So how did you go about training, you know, such a diverse group of uh, colleagues over, you know, a fairly broad area? Yeah. So we held um, a couple of training session for our volunteers um, and uh, we they were very thorough right we went and did very uh, detailed um, 
detailed, uh, we also wrote a detailed SOP for them to reference um, as well, um, but making sure that they all understood exactly how we wanted them to collect the sample, um, keeping in mind, you know, the, um, the, the considerations for sampling for PFAS, um, making sure that they were, uh, you, you know, using appropriate materials, um, and also just helping them understand things, um, things that some of us take for granted, like chain of custody protocols. Um, Right, but making sure everyone knew about that, knew knew to make sure their samples were stored on ice to get shipped to the lab, um, all those all those important things. Good stuff. Um, I think we definitely need to appreciate you know the what went into training people from you know different backgrounds across a, a broad area to do this sampling independently. Um, so let's talk about the sampling locations. How were the sampling locations selected or otherwise avoided? Um, yeah, so we started by sort of canvassing um, all the folks um, you know, that live in, in Massachusetts um, that work for Word and Current um, and um, finding out who might be interested in participating. Um, and then we put their, essentially put their homes on a map <laughs> and then, um, looked at their, their locations relative to um, potential sources of, of PFAS and, and, and to each other, right? Making sure that we were able to get good geographical distribution. So um, ultimately narrowing it down to um, those 25 locations um, that we felt were, were representative of um, the state and, you know, not gonna be obvious, you know, not have obvious sources of, of PFAS impacts nearby. Yeah, having looked at the study, it, it looked like it ended up being a pretty good distribution. I think uh, that lends in part to uh, where our team is located. Um, so I understand members of the team use some creative ingenuity in deploying their sampling apparatus. Um, Sam, could you talk about the setup? Yeah, so, um, so the primary setup consists of a, a tray and a screen, and I actually have it right here behind me. Let's see if I can make this happen, right? But the but this is the tray, um, and um, the tray. So the, the tray would sit on a surface, and then we had the screen that would sit on top of the tray to prevent any um, you know, major debris from getting into that sample. Um, and so, yes, Jeff, to your point, some people were um, pretty creative in, in how they decided to set up this system um, in their yards. Um, which I think is one of my favorite parts too, <laughs> um, seeing people's creativity. Um, some people, you know, were just able to put them on benches or or tables, and other people used their, you know, their their garbage bins <laughs> or whatever upside down, whatever they had. Um, but um, people, um, but all of our volunteers took it very seriously um, and wanted to make sure that they collected a uh, collected really, you know, good samples from their property. Good um, stuff. Pretty cool. Um, I guess keeping with that um, final question on the sampling, what were so what were the sample um, collection criteria? How much water did you need? Uh, when did you collect a sample? What were the criteria for you know putting yeah, that sample um, in the bottle? So I can I can start with this one. I think Matt can probably chime in, but uh, a little bit towards the end. But um, ultimately, we designed the the equipment, um, the tray in particular. Um, you can see it's pretty big and it's and it's fairly deep, and that was. Um, on purpose, we wanted to make sure that we, um, with at least a quarter inch of rain, we could um, collect enough volume to fill the sample jars, the required, get the required volume for the analysis of PFAS. Um, and so, 
so as you, as you alluded to, Jeff, the the um, our sort of our a sampleable rain event was considered one that rained at least um, a quarter of an inch. It turns out we could get away with a little bit less than that, but a quarter of an inch is about where we was sort of our our threshold. Um, and um, and then and that was primarily that was primarily it. Um, although um, as Matt can speak to, we did want to make sure that we collected samples from um, the two different types of rain events as well. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so that's a good segue and a good opportunity to pull Matt into the discussion. Uh, you know, what I find unique and interesting about the study is the consideration of the meteorology and the types of clouds and rain events that were documented for sampling. Um, so Matt, can you tell us about the types of rain events and the cloud formations that were identified for sampling? Love to, Jeff. I think uh, kind of zooming out and thinking about the other studies that have looked at rain, uh, PFAS and rain across the country, um, we had seen those and read those. And it was kind of clear that they looked at a broader, either seasonal perspective uh, or broader uh, regional perspective and did not think about some of the nuances of pre precipitation. Uh, and so we kind of wanted to include that, as you said, as an, kind of a unique element to the study. And we did that by thinking about precipitation in two forms. Um, really, there's two main types of precipitation that you'll see. Stratiform, which is what we're generally familiar with as we look at kind of the radar radar map, the, the giant blobs of green, uh, the rainfall that is kind of a steady, uh, even rainfall over the course of uh, sometimes a day, sometimes multiple days. Uh, that generally is, as you look up during a stratiform precipitation event, the sky is covered in overcast, kind of a sheet cloud from uh, nimbostratus clouds. And so that's one type. There's all kinds of dynamics associated with the stratiform precipitation event that we might get into later. And the other type that we want to think about was a convective precipitation event. This is precipitation that starts uh, because of much more energy uh, in the atmosphere and is present during a stratiform event. So you get much more significant kind of up updrafts uh, that condense water, form clouds, and that energy continues to grow the cloud into these kind of towering, uh, very bulbous shapes that you can see as you, as you think about kind of a thunderstorm, this is a convective event. Uh, these clouds start off in kind of the puffy, nice cumulus clouds, and then they grow into kind of a cumulus congestus cloud. And then if it's a lot of energy, it can grow into a cumulonimbus cloud or the anvil shaped cloud that we're very familiar with that has lightning associated with, with it and thunder and sometimes hail. And so that type of precipitation event has much different dynamics than a stratiform event. And uh, we wanted to, and, and the spatial coverage of those two events, in terms of a stratiform covering a much broader area and a convective event kind of in a cellular, uh, cellular basis. If you look at radar from convective event, you'd see much 
pocket, you see little pockets of uh, brighter colors in the radar. I see if you look uh, on television or on your app, weather app. So there's a this clear distinction between these two types of precipitation events, and we wanted to include something unique, uh, something that we thought had a basis in physical dynamics for how PFAS could enter uh, the atmospheric um, water cycle. And so we looked at those two events, stratiform and convective. So I think it's probably a natural question to wonder whether there's PFAS in rainwater. We hear about how widespread PFAS are and that's found in this and that. Um, but it's you know an interesting element here to see how it fits in the water cycle and you know not just looking at PFAS and rain but you know how does it fit in the overall water cycle so take it into account those weather dynamics and the different types of clouds I think that's definitely uh, a unique aspect of this study and I think it makes sense to do it that way but let me ask you this um, how how was this handled in a practical matter like how were these types of rain events um, identified and how are they communicated to the team and how did the team know when to sample and you know what type of rain event was occurring? Right, that's that's a big piece. Uh, we we needed to know what type of rain they were they were sending off to the lab, and we did that uh, kind of in two two approaches. First was training. So we as part of our training we had a little weather 101 class where we taught the observers, uh, the samplers, uh, what the difference between a stratiform and a convective precipitation event is. So look at the cloud formations. Uh, if you're watching the weather, look at the radar imagery. Uh, look at the precipitation pattern as it falls. Typically convective events have much larger raindrops and the rainfall is much more intense then a stratiform event, which kind of has smaller raindrops and uh, lighter, lighter intensity rain. Uh, think about other, other factors of a convective event that would be signals like thunder or lightning or hail or higher winds. Uh, so we kind of had that training component where they had, they got a quick uh, crash course in how to be a precipitation observer. And then secondly was the prediction component to it, where uh, twice a week I would put together a kind of rudimentary weather forecast for the week and, and highlight events that could be popping up during the week, uh, when those would occur, uh, at what, what day, at what time, what the likelihood of those events would be to get a sampleable event. So a sampleable event, Sam said, we kind of calculated it would be a quarter of an inch of precipitation, liquid precipitation. So if the event was going to be too small, we weren't going to consider it. So is this going to be a sample event? Yes. When is it going to be? Where is it going to be? So it would be a forecast across the state uh, with cues as to the region. And then what type? So I would try my best to predict what the type of event would be based on model output data. Uh, National Weather Service outlooks, etc. So that would be delivered to the samplers twice a week, one at the beginning of the week and one kind of midweek to cover the weekend. And we wanted to make sure that they knew what was upcoming. 
And then once they collected a sample and uh, filled out a form that Sam developed to hew in to us what they were looking at in terms of the precipitation. Was it intense? Was there wind? Did you hear thunder? Uh, what was the cloud like? We would take that information along with their sample and kind of pair the two together and then determine this was uh, most likely a convective or stratiform event. And then we would communicate to the samplers if those had, had already collected a stratiform event and they needed a convective event, we would make sure to kind of inform them, hey, there's a convective event coming this week. It's happening at this time, at this place. A good time to set up your equipment would be three o'clock in the afternoon. And if those had collected a convective event, then we would highlight the stratiform events for them. So there's a training component and that prediction component to how we, how we landed on those two events. Nice. So we've talked about uh, the team that did this work and you know, it was a, a sort of diverse team that was broadly distributed and they were trained to do this. Um, but I think it's, you know, that's challenging enough, but then to basically coordinate, coordinate that team according to the, not only the rain is coming, but the type of rain that's coming. So another unique aspect of the study. So I think our audience here gets a pretty good appreciation for the effort. Uh, but with that, let's talk about some of the results. Uh, the results of the study really contribute to our knowledge of PFAS occurrence in the broader water cycle. So Kathy, uh, could you please give us an overview of the results? What do we find? Sure. Um, I mean, I think uh, basically we, we found five different PFAS uh, detected in our, our sample data set. Uh, these ranged in, in detection. Um, most of them are really low. I mean, it was really just low concentrations that we would uh, detect in, in our rainwater samples, a couple few parts per trillion nanograms per liter that of, for each of these uh, PFAS detected. We saw PFBA as the most frequently detected and followed by PFPEA and uh, 6,2 uh, fluorotelomer sulfonate, and then also had a hit each of the PFHXA and PFNA. So five total. Uh, again, concentrations ranged you know, for detections, you know, 1.8 to 3.5 nanograms per liter you know, per compound, um, and in total PFAS uh, was under nine nanograms per liter at the highest uh, concentration. So very low concentrations below drinking water standards. Um, and as far as how many locations had detections, 11 of the 50 primary samples we collected. So Sam had said we had 25 stations or locations and each one collected two samples. So trying to get one stratiform and one convective. Um, and of those, 11 of those 50 samples had detectable levels of PFAS, um, and of those 11, 10 were from convective rain events, and only one stratiform event had PFAS detected, which was interesting and part of our data set. So um, detected fairly frequently, but not in every sample. I think you said 11 of 50. So for the results that we had, for the samples we collected, how do those results compare to say what we know as you know drinking water criteria for PFAS? And for each of these compounds detected, they were all below um, any applicable drinking water standard for Massachusetts. Okay. And I um, 
felt the results made me feel better about letting the uh, rain water my vegetable garden. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. Um, I think um, you know that's the that's the point of this study. We want to know sort of where and what concentration and how is uh, you know PFAS moving through the water cycle. Um, so I think that actually tees up my next question. Kathy, I think you said that um, the vast majority uh, of the detected results were associated with um, the convective systems. Is that right? Correct. So let's go back to our meteorologist, Matt. Um, Matt, can you talk about some of the physical processes that may be relevant to entraining PFAS into clouds and the subsequent precipitation? So like, why, why are we seeing the PFAS in the convective cells and not the stratiform? Right. It was a great result from the perspective of our our original idea to kind of think about, is there a difference between these two events? I want to first define a, a term you just said, entrain, entrainment, entraining. Uh, what that really means for those listeners and watchers who are not familiar with that is how uh, kind of ambient air gets drawn into a precipitating cloud. Uh, and then mixed and then ultimately comes out. So why would the convective, uh, why would there be a signal with convective events versus stratiforms, which there clearly is from this study? Uh, well, our working theory has to do with some of those physical dynamics that you alluded to, Jan. Um, and with a convective event, Again, it's kind of this kind of cellular, uh, the cellular phenomenon, very kind of smaller scale on the order of, say, a kilometer in diameter, uh, sparsely distributed. A much more local, efficient engine for bringing in ambient air and then wet depositing that ambient air onto the ground or into a precipitation sample tray. Uh, much more efficient just from its its horizontal scale, but also from a couple other factors. First, the the way a convective uh, a convective cell grows is by this kind of rigorous uh, this rigorous vertical motion brought about by significant heat uh, heat changes at the surface. So you have this strong vertical motion. It condenses water vapor in the air, forms a cloud. Uh, eventually draws up air parcels such that uh, little raindrops uh, kind of grow into large raindrops to the point where a large raindrops gravitational settling uh, exceeds uh, the vertical motion in that convective cloud and the big raindrop falls out. And as it falls out, not only has it already taken some of the characteristics of the ambient air due to the kind of entrainment and uh, vertical motion that the convective cloud has, but on the way down, uh, this larger, more intense rainfall is a much more efficient uh, wet deposition engine for collecting ambient air and depositing it uh, very efficiently to a local uh, local area. So there's the scale, there's the vertical motion, uh, there's the intensity of the precipitation that in the convective event are all much more efficient wet deposition pieces than a stratiform event. 
another piece is potential ionization of a convective cloud. I mentioned before, as these things grow from cumulus to cumulus congestus to cumulonimbus, as you grow this big uh, convective cloud, eventually you start to push up into kind of the frozen the frozen uh, portion of the atmosphere, the below freezing portion, where you could have ice crystals. And as you have water droplets intermingling with ice crystals being mixed around with these big, vigorous uh, vertical motions, you develop charges and you can ionize that cloud. And so the uptake of PFAS into water, uh, Jeff, I think you'd be, you'd be more qualified to speak to this than me, but as I as we read about it, and as we understand it, the uptake into uh, into water is increased and more efficient uh, under that ionized environment. So that's the convective engine, much more efficient in our view. That's the theory uh, to both draw in PFAS emissions in the ambient air and then to wet deposit them uh, through the rainfall. On the stratiform side, uh, you have a much broader uh, a much broader cell of precipitation on the order of 100 kilometers, much weaker kind of regional uh, uplift, regional vertical motion that really doesn't draw too much of the lower level ambient air. Really the way precipitation forms in a stratiform cloud is from the top down, not from the bottom up as in a convective cloud. Stratiform cloud starts as small ice crystals at the top of the cloud and then kind of slowly descends through the cloud, growing uh, by kind of a rhyming mechanism, and then reaching the point in the cloud where it's uh, above freezing, the ice melts, forms a little raindrop, and falls out. So lighter intensity rain, broader scale, weaker uh, entrainment dynamics, and certainly lack of ionization potential in the stratiform cloud. So those were kind of the dynamical changes we saw or the variations between those two wet deposition engines. And our theory is that the more efficient wet deposition engine, especially for local PFAS uh, rain concentrations, is the convective engine, which is why we saw a stronger signal from those events. Yeah, that does make sense. And as you know, you know, one thing that I've speculated about in the course of our conversations is there does seem to be a correlation between the molecular weight of the PFAS that were entrained um, and their frequency of occurrence. I think Kathy said PFBA was most frequently detected. And you know, there does seem to be some correlation as, as I look at the data, which would make sense. You know, those lighter molecular weight PFAS would be drawn up more readily than the others. I think there's a lot of other variables that may go into that, uh, like, you know, the the concentration and type of PFAS you have where it's being drawn up, but uh, it does seem to be some correlation as I look at it in the data. Um, Okay, so great stuff, team. What do you think are the implications of this study uh, for understanding the occurrence of PFAS in the environment? We've talked about some of the details, how we did the sampling, uh, you know, some of the dynamics of what's going on and the results, but, you know, how does this contribute to, you know, our overall understanding for the occurrence of PFAS in the environment? Anyone want to take that? I, I think it's, it's you know, one area 
um, that we, we, we have our you know, study area. Um, I think knowing that it's present in rainwater, um, but not at significant levels, at least at this location at this time, um, is, is beneficial to understand that it is just part of the overall hydrologic cycle. It's, it's, we have to consider it at least in the overall conceptual site model. Um, but I, at least based on this data set, it's not a huge contributor of um, you know, potential impacts you know, to the media that we're, we're specifically looking at you know, when we're talking soil, sediment, um, groundwater. Yeah, I would agree. You know, we we do hear a lot about how PFAS are pretty widespread and detected in a lot of things, as we talked about earlier in the discussion. You know, I think it's a natural question: Would we expect to see PFAS in rainwater? And we did, uh, but it wasn't. You know, there were results that were not detected. Um, some of the con you know the concentrations weren't that high. So for me, it says, yeah, this is a link. For PFAS in the water cycle, but maybe the weak link, if you will. Um, so I think excellent work contributing to the science of PFAS and the occurrence in the environment. And you know, I think you know the detections that we saw are interesting, but I also think the fact that it wasn't always detected and it was detected at relatively low concentrations are you know equally interesting for me as far as this study goes. So if you could expand the study or do additional research, what would you like to do? I know me personally, I'd be interested to look at it seasonally, right? So looking at it, I mean, I don't know that we could get that many convective events seasonally throughout the year. Um, I'll defer to Matt on that, but just, you know, is there any variation throughout the year, um, you know, at some subset? When that's actually raises a good question. When were our samples collected? What season was this conducted? It was a September, October timeframe. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point, Kathy. It'd be good to see that, you know, year, you know, across the whole year uh, during different seasons. You know, personally, I'd love to see it, you know, expanded geographically, you know, maybe at the, exactly. the national level. I think that would be really cool too. Um, Anything I else? Heard, I was gonna say I have heard of some of our the neighboring states are, are looking into it, so I think it would be really interesting to to compare their data set um, with ours. Yeah, I think it would be too. Um, I think it would be great if uh, other studies took into account, you know, some of the unique considerations of this one, such as you know the different cloud types, um, and you know I think it would be good to do it on a national basis with a uniform approach so we're not making a jigsaw puzzle of you know different approaches but you know curious to see how this type of research expands and what else it shows okay well that wraps up this episode of the disrupting PFAS podcast i'd like to thank my colleagues at woodard and curran sam olney matt jones and kathy rockwell for joining us today i'm your host jeff hale reminding you to never say forever 